Well, this morning we come again to Acts chapter 17, looking at verses 22 through 31. We come again to Paul's sermon there at the Areopagus, there to um, the uh, philosophers in Athens. And this, this morning's message is entitled, Paul Declares Who God Is. Join me there in verse 22 of Acts chapter 17, and let's read th- or excuse me, verse 31 together. Beginning there, in verse 30, uh, beginning there in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with, which, with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. And he made for every nation mankind to live in times and boundaries and their habits. Seek God, if perhaps you might grow from Him and far from Him. For in Him exist as even some of your own. For we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the gold or silver or stone by the art or thought of man. Therefore, ignorance. God is now to me. day in which he righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from Well, we touched on uh, Paul's entering into Athens last on last Lord's Day and um, his preaching there to the philosophers at the Areopagus, the, the council there, the city council, if you will, and primarily two uh, philosophical uh, uh, systems there when he began to come in and began to engage them with the gospel, with the truth of Jesus Christ, particularly the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, they had two different schools of philosophy, and he began to, to engage them in the courtyard there in, in the open square, and ultimately that brought him before the city council there what is called here referred to the Areopagus. Um, and so then Paul begins to share. And he does so in a very interesting way. And so we're going to look at that this morning and see how God begins, or excuse me, how Paul begins to share about the reality of who God is as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to scripture, and as it relates to carrying the truth of God into a very pagan context. And if you think about it, the current climate of our culture, which used to be very uh, biblically informed by and large, and very much uh, um, friendly to the Christian faith, now it's quite different. The biblical understanding of God is devalued at best in our culture, and by and large diminished. The classic understanding of God has been overshadowed by postmodern spiritualism and New Age mysticism. The self-het 
help internet uh, influencers are really the evangelists of our age. So a proper biblical understanding of God is a lot on our culture. But actually declaring God and who God is is vital to the Christian. It's vital to who we are. It's important because declaring the gospel, in declaring the gospel, we are declaring who God is. And to understand who God is must come from one who has grasped the gospel, who has laid hold of the gospel, or if you will, the gospel has laid hold of them. If the gospel lays hold of you, in that reality, there is an understanding of who God is. So they're interconnected. Who God is and the gospel never, uh, are never separated. They're always together. Together. So if you will, some have put it this way. Actually, doctrine, and we're talking here about the doctrine of God. And that's what we're going to look at as Paul carries the doctrine of God to the philosophers there in Athens. The doctrine is really what drives devotion. Now, I know we, we all like devotional books, and so do I, and devotional books can be very helpful, but um, the thing that really fuels the devotion, when we really get to it, when the rubber meets the road, when we're living life, what really fuels the devotion of the Christian is doctrine. Sound doctrine drives our devotion. It moves us to be in awe of the God who is worthy of all worship. That in mind, I want to read a little portion of a prayer from Augustine and his confession. describes the character of God here. So I just want to give you a little flavor of that as we enter into the, the, the being of God. And Paul brings that forth here to the philosophers of his day. I want you to just hear from Augustine as he describes the character of God a little bit here. Again, this is not a full um, quote. I'm not reading all of the quote here, but I'll just give you a little flavor. Now this is a prayer. He begins, Most high, utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful, and most just, deeply hidden, yet most intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable, and yet changing all things, never new, never old, making everything new, always active, always in repose, Gathering to yourself, but not in need. Supporting and feeling and protecting. Creating and nurturing and bringing to maturity. Searching even though, you, even though to you nothing is lacking. You love without burning. You are jealous in a way that is free from anxiety. You are wrathful and remain tranquil. You will a change without any change in your design. You recover what you find, yet have never lost. Never in any need, you rejoice in your gain. End quote. Isn't that marvelous? So when we think about who God is, and the character of God, the being of God, the essence of God, Paul brings that to Athens. And we take note here that Paul doesn't speak a word of Scripture to these philosophers. But we're going to get a, a little bit of a taste of the reality of how we need to see Scripture 
as we're carrying the gospel into our culture, into our context where God has placed us. And it's that Scripture is binding on the hearts of men in word, in deed, and in principle. And here, Paul's going to allude to the God of the Bible, and he's not going to point to in text. He assumes, and I want you to understand it up front, he assumes the God of the Bible and just implements that into his gospel. He assumes it. And so should we. So Paul just takes them directly to truth and speaks of the God of the Bible and brings that to bear on their philosophical meanderings and just assumes the reality of who God is from the Scripture. So I want you to see see where he's coming from here as he begins to engage these men. So when we look at these verses here, and again, we're just going to look at God's uh, excuse me, at Paul's introduction of God here in the text, 22 through 31. But as we do, notice that um, this is not all that Paul said. So what we're looking here is Luke's inspired uh, condensed version. Paul more words than this. But it's con- not, this is not a full manuscript of what, what Paul said there at the Areop- Areopagus. Nonetheless, and it gives us an example of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, which is good for us, right? It's a model for us to reach the Gentiles. This is how Paul began to engage the Gentiles, pagan culture. And quite frankly, it's hard to imagine, really, we're, for the most part, now ministering to a pagan culture, by and large. Now, there's varying context to, to that, but context, more and more we are engaging what you would say more of a pagan culture than a culture that is steeped in at least biblical understanding or some concepts of biblical concepts in the culture as, like, as they may have been 30, 40 years ago. So it's a pagan culture and so we can learn much from Paul as we examine his message here that this from this balanced approach that he takes. So Paul here, he sculpted his message from the doctrine of the one true God. He takes that assumed from the Bible and he just sculpts it into his conversation with these men. And again, he does not use Scripture references per se to encounter these men, but he alludes to Scripture. That's just an understood reality of his conversation. So he alludes to Scripture. And his audience didn't hold the authority of Scripture, right? They didn't believe in the Old Testament. It wasn't part of their life. They didn't know it, and they didn't, they didn't respect it. But nonetheless, he comes to them with the reality of who the God of the Bible is. And he applies that and lays that to bear on them as understood truth and fact. But he comes to this in teaching them about God, and he does so without other proof or evidence. Hold that in your thinking here as we listen to his language. So he gives no external proof or evidence for the authority of Scripture, because that's where he's coming from. He just assumes the authority of Scripture and tells them 
of the Bible and applies it to truth and reality upon them. He opposes it upon their lives. It's just understood. No external evidence. No need to go through that. He's not going there. This is the God of the Bible. This is who He is. This is His being. This is His essence. This is your accountability to Him. Okay? Why is this? Because Scripture is authoritative. Y'all. Scripture is authoritative. Amen? It's self-authenticating. That's where Paul goes. Everything he says is assumed from Scripture because it's self-authenticating. He doesn't, he doesn't go uh, and take them to a specific verse. He just states the reality of it. He works off of the applied truths of Scripture. It's self-authenticating. It's self-authenticating to all, even to those who do not acknowledge its authority. Right? It certainly is. Scripture, on its own, has a divine power to convict and obligate men to respond to truth. On its own. Scripture grips men. Whether they acknowledge its authority, Scripture grips men. Explaining the God of the Bible, the character, the being of God, grips men. Because Scripture is self-attesting. And that brings us to the Creator. And that's where Paul begins in verse 24. The Creator. So in verse 24... Paul comes to them and he says this, the God who made the world and all things in it. Now that's just, he just takes scriptural truth without going to a specific verse and just lays it on them. This unknown God that you have out there, let me tell you about the one true God. He's the creator God. Everything that's made, He made. God is the universal creator. All that exists originated from God. So before creation was existing eternally, basking, if you will, infinitely content in the eternal fullness of His triune glory. He just was. Genesis 1.1 says this to us. Isn't this where we go with our children? We're working on our, our memory verses. Don't we always go there first? Well, Paul takes us right back there. This is the reality of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God and His mighty power brought, first, brought forth the universe out of nothing. God spoke all created existence into being. Louis Burkhoff in his excellent systematic says this about creation. The meaning of creation in a nutshell. Creation is the, revel- is the, revel- uh, the, the revelation of um, the relationship of man to his God. So all about creation, all that exists, boils down to this reality. It speaks volumes in every corner of the universe, seen and unseen about the relationship of God to His unique creation, created in His image, man. And He says to them, the God who created everything, including you, is who I'm going to tell you about. God created according to His sovereign will. He was not obligated. He was not in need. 
He created out of His sovereign will. Ephesians 1.11 speaks to, uh, uh, of God in this, in this light. He is the God who works all things after the counsel of His will. That includes creation. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. All things. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are You, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of You will they... uh, Will they existed and were created. All things. God made everything seen and unseen. Angels. Unseen. Created beings of God. Everything that we see, everything that we don't see. The laws of logic. Unseen, but yet created. Wind. We see the effects of wind, but we can't really see wind. Created. Space. Created. We can't See all of space. We see the reality of space. We see the reality of some of the universe. But it's created. Time. What about time? We just changed it, didn't we? Boy, that was rough. Now, how do you do how do we, We're just responding to that. Badly, I think. Sometimes. But God created time. We're just, and now we're just working in that, man. He created time. Everything that was created, God created. Gravity, see the effects of that? Created. God created everything. Everything that is created was created by the one true creator, God. God, if you will, stepped out onto nothing and spoke nothing into existence. All that is created, all is created by God. He is not only the creator, He is also the owner. So Paul hits them immediately you're with, the, with the fact that you're here because the God of Scripture created you. He created everything. That would include you. And now He's going to bring them after that reality. These, these gods of your imaginations you're grubbing for so much so that you have to create a concept of one that might be out there somewhere that you don't know about. Just to cover your tracks. Why? There is a philosophical principle here working. They don't know who they're worshiping. Isn't that their problem? When you get to uh, just making a possibility of an unknown God to cover your tracks, this is something we can know for sure about you. You don't know who you're worshiping. Because you just made space in your thoughts of, on worship of something that might be out there that you don't know about. They're messed up. And so Paul brings them right down to the baseline here. You've got one God. He created everything. Now He's creator, so that brings us to the next step. He's also owner. If He created it, He owns it. Listen to the language here. Verse 24 and 25. So He makes all things, and there back in verse 24... B, he says, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now he's creator and he's also owner. God is the supreme Lord over all his creation. He didn't create it 
like a watchmaker and just wind it up to be. And he owns it. And he's intimately engaged with his creation. And so when we think about ownership, you know, we could put a lot of stuff to rest right here. Because the church is, the, the culture at large is trying to minimize the church at every that it's superficial. We have the truth of the gospel of the one truth. And, we can, and with that, we could tidy a lot of conversations up. Could, well, man, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of, um, since we, we have so many diverse ideologies and such tension in the political wranglings of our day, critical theory has raised its ugly head and created so much diversity. And there's a lot of racial tension. We are now talking about skin color all the time. That's all you hear. And here we know something about our God. He owns everything. That's everybody. We have a commonality there. We're all owned by God. Why does He have the right to own us? Well, He made us, didn't He? That's His right. If you make something, you're owner of it. Do we have a right to own anybody? Well, we don't. History, because men thought they had the right to own some other men, and then we tried to bring uh, ethnicity into it. If we're honest, men of every ethnicity all over the planet have thought they had the right to own other men. So let's just get, you know, get real about the facts. And they've done so because they're sinful just like us. But here's a good, healthy dose of reality for us. We don't have the right to own anybody. We didn't create anybody. But there is one true Creator God who has right to own everybody because He created us all. And by the way, we have that in common. All people of every ethnicity has this in common. We're all created by the one true Creator God. And we're all accountable to Him. Because He made us. We're not autonomous. Not one of us are autonomous. We've been created by the one true Creator God. He owns us all. We've been created in His image. So God is a sovereign master over all that He has created. He is the owner of creation. And all of humanity owes Him worship. Why? He created us in His image. Out of all that He has created, He's created everything that exists outside of Himself. And out of all of creation, He made mankind unique. How? He created us in His image. So I hear lots of talk, and uh, some of the fellows brought, uh, brought some points up in our morning studies over the last few Sundays concerning uh, this um, movement to try to move away from our distinction from the animals and our arrogance. How dare we feel that we are superior to the animals? Well, we are. Why? Because they have not been created in the image of God by their Creator. They've been created, but not in the image of God. Do uh, We read from Scripture that the animals worship God. Isn't that glorious? Well, they worship God. Aren't we excited about that? Of course we're excited about that. Are they conscious of their worshiping God? Or they just worship God as a a display of His His glorious, creative uh, uh, beauty? 
No, that's how they worship God. They're just being animals. And in being animals, they display the majesty of God and His creative beauty. But they're not conscious of it, are they? Only mankind is conscious of his or her worship of the one true God. Why? Because we're uniquely created in His image. And we're accountable. We're not autonomous. What about a free will? We do have a free will. We, we make free will decisions all the time. We absolutely have a free will. We don't have an autonomously free will. That's the difference. We have a free will to, to, to make decisions. We're making decisions every day. We do not have an autonomously free will. It's not absolutely free. It's accountable to who? Our Creator God. Why? Because He created us. And we're different than all the rest of creation that we've been created in the image of God. Well, he goes on there in verse 24 and he says uh, that um, this Creator God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, we look at the Old Testament, man, we know that the glory of God came upon the temple, right? That's happened. God's certainly in the temple, right? We can look back at the Old Testament and see where God's glory and majesty, He's in the temple. Now here's the question. Is He contained within the temple? Oh, no, no. He's not contained within the temple. Why? Because His being limited to the temple. His being is unlimited. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. God is everywhere all the time, y'all. Everywhere all the time. His being is unlimited. We're limited, right? Space and time. If you're here this morning, you may not be locked in, but you're bodily present because you can't be anywhere else. Now your mind, that's a different story. We won't go there. But your being is here until you get up and walk yourself out. We're limited. Man, we're limited. We're limited in more ways than we like to think about. We are limited. God is limitless. He has no boundaries. Second Chronicles 2, 6 but who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is the house that you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? In contrast, God's the temple sit in the temple. Why the pagan gods of the temple sit in the temple? They can't move. They have no life. Much less the capacity to create life. That's why they sit in the temple. God's presence is unlimited. God is everywhere, all the time. He has a limitless existence. Verse 25 goes on and says, Speaking of God, nor is He served by human hands as though He need anything. 
Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Look, God is self-sufficient. God needs nothing from us. He does not need our worship. Does God command worship of us? Yes. Does God command repentance of all fallen mankind? Yes. Does He need us? No. No. He's not lonely. He's not missing a compartment of His life. He's not sad. He's not discouraged. He's not perplexed. He's not uninformed. He's on the right side of history. He created it in a linear pattern and He's going to bring it to a consummated end for His own glory. Amen? Everything belongs to God. He doesn't need anything. God speaking here in Psalm 50 verse 12. If I were hungry, I'm not because I'm God. I don't get hungry. But if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. I could get my food. I have access. I own everything. I don't need, I have no lack. The word, the theological term here is God is independent in every conceivable fashion. That is, He's self-sufficient. He's self-sustaining. He's self-satisfied. He needs Nothing. Job 35, 7, speaking of God, what does He receive from our hand? What does He receive from your hand? Answer, nothing. He has no need. I like the language here of Matthew Barrett. He's uh, in his book on the attributes of God. The book is entitled None Greater. It's an excellent book. And here's what he says, about God. God is someone than whom no greater can be conceived. Isn't that cool? It's a little wordy, but man, that's just, that, that sums it up, doesn't it? It's exactly the reality. God needs nothing. There is nothing greater than God. In, in His being, in His essence, He has no capacity to need. There's nothing greater. God owns it all. Why? Because He made it all. So God is our Creator. He's a Creator God. He has no need. But He is also our Provider God. He is our Creator. He is our Owner. And He is our Provider. Look there in verses 25 and 26. Beginning in verse 25, there, 25b, Since He Himself gave to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So God is a good and perpetual provider. Since He Himself... Gave to all people life and breath and all things. So we receive all that we have from His providential care. All that we have has come through His providential hand to us. Perpetually. The whole time of our existence, the providential hand of God has perpetually cared for us. All that we have 
has come to us through the kind and good hand of Creator God. Now, unlike God who never needs, we, say it with me, always need. Man, do we need. Psalm 104.28 You give to them and they gather it up. You open your hand and they are satisfied with good all the time. Our Creator God provides for us. He gives to us. Psalm 119.68 You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good. You are provider God. God's in control of everything. All works out to His intended purpose. He is our provider. And as He provides perpetually for us, it's all working out for His good, to His intended purpose, and for the good of those who love Him. So He's made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their uh, appointed times and their boundaries and their habitation. That sounds like a very intimate God that is providentially caring for all the details of every person that He has created. Nothing's left uh, 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 undone here. Nothing's left open-ended. He created us and He's determined our appointed times. He created us when He determined for us to be created. This is our time that He intended for us to walk upon His planet that He created. And in our time, He has given us boundaries. Wow! So let's see. There are boundaries, right? There are borders. That concept comes from God. He created them. He has made our boundaries. There are boundaries. We might not think there are boundaries for our lives, but there are boundaries. And they're all part of God's design for us. And He's created our habitation. He is the maker of every nation. He sets them up and He directs them according to His purposes. And we're all from Adam. And here we go again. Isn't this beautiful? Doesn't this, doesn't this make it a lot easier for us? Can't we bring the scriptural truth to bear upon our culture? This is assumed. The authority of Scripture is assumed here. Oh, well, where is the science? Consumed here in the truth of Scripture. We're created from one man. All of us. Every ethnicity. From one human being. We're all created from Adam. You know what that makes us? All part of humanity. We have a commonality. Is there diversity within humanity? Of course there is. Is there a greater core commonality? And in this sense, we're all brothers. We all, we're all brothers. Brothers and sisters. All traced back to one man. We're all part of the human race. And we're all created in the image of God. Isn't that a lot of consistency there? Oh, how we want to divide divide one another. Oh, how we look to hate one another based on aspects of our humanity when that's the one thing that unites us the most. We've all been created in the image of God and we all came from one man. We're all part of humanity. And here's where the woke ideology of critical theory, particularly critical race theory, is poisonous to the body of Christ. 
If we allow this to permeate the body of Christ, it will be the nail that coffins the corpse. This is poison for the body of Christ. This notion of uh, critical race theory would demand that we, uh, that we have differential treatment for those in the brotherhood based on our skin color. That we parse up the body of Christ and give certain uh, privileges to certain aspects of the body of Christ based on the color of our skin. Based on racial identity. How are you figure that out? What we do know is that we're all part of one race created in Adam. And now those of us who are in Christ are now part of, uh, 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 of the body of Christ, redeemed through the blood of Christ, purchased through the atoning work of Christ on Calvary's cross. And there we have unity in Christ. And our skin color has nothing to do with that. Our bond with one another that's, that's, that stems from the reality of our unity in Christ that stems from His grace being lavished upon us and saving us from our deadness and sin and bringing us and quickening us to spiritual life in Christ and bringing us into His kingdom and uniting us has the greatest bond upon us regardless, irregardless of our skin color which has nothing to do with our bond in Christ which binds us together as God's people and love, and unity. And to allow man-made philosophies to drive a wedge into that beauty and mock the cross of Christ is shameful and must be repudiated. It's wickedness, and it cannot permeate the church. The glory of God as our provider is far too meaningful, and our redemption is far too precious. This Wickedness of sinful man and the ideologies of man must be put away in the church. Christ has united us. He is our one true King. And there we find our bond. So, this is a reminder pointing to the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. What we find here, this language that He has appointed our time, our boundaries, and our habitations. That's a reminder for us. That's a glorious marker for us. It reminds us that He's bringing all things to a consummated end. He has created a linear, He has created space and time. He's created a linear history. It is His story. And He's bringing it to a consummate end. And this reality here that He has set our time, He has set our borders and He has set our habitation as a great reminder to us that He has authority over us. We have a time and we are accountable to Him in that time. And He has placed specific details of it that He's going to bring about according to His own good pleasure. And He's bringing it to a consummate end. And He's doing so as the Creator God who is worthy of all worship. It is a great reminder to us. Jesus Christ is that Creator God and is the sustainer of all human race that He created. He is the disperser of every nation. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. God sets up the boundaries and the habitations of all mankind. Chronologically, geographically, spiritually, all are determined by God. Empires rise and they fall. And man, are we busy about that business, aren't we? 
But the reality of it is they rise and fall according to the sovereign will of God, according to His own good pleasure. That brings us to God, the sustainer. He's our creator, He's our owner, He's our provider, and He's our sustainer. Look there in verses 27 and 28. That they would seek God. This is why we have this reminder there of our time, our boundaries, our habitations. So that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. And even some of your poets have said, for we also are His children. Well, God is the sustainer of every nation. Now, the Greek philosophers, particularly the Epicureans, felt like uh, the pantheon of gods there were just remote and far removed from the concerns of man. No concern about them at all. Now, again, the Stoics had taken uh, this, this notion of reason, that reason that somehow is that great truth that permeates all of the universe and, and reason, but still remote, but nonetheless is there and, and noble and, and in some ways at least accessible. Uh, the term for reason is what? It's a Greek term for reason. Logos, right? That's what John used to describe the Christ. So what they called reason, Logos, John told them, well, I'm going to tell you what, you, this, this reason that you, that you ponder over, this force in the universe, let me explain who that is. That's Christ, the unique God-man, the second person of the triune God. He's the Word. He's the Logos. So this notion of being removed and disinterested in the affairs of men, uh, Paul brings to bear this reality that God is actually our sustainer. This notion is is far-fetched and conjured in their feeble minds. And he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. There's the intimacy. So this Creator God that is, that is unaccessible, un- incomprehensible. We can never comprehend to the fullest degree the being of God. That's not possible. Yet, uh, uh, A.W. Tozer tells us, all that we think about God tells us the most important thing about who we are. So we're to ponder Him and His worth and His magic. But w- will we ever plumb the depths of the being of God? No, we will not. No, we will not. Augustine says we cannot. We have not the capacity to plumb the depths of the being of God. But we should. We should think on Him. To know Him. To know all that we can about Him. And here he even says the pagans, those uh, outside the faith, those who only have uh, creation and the general revelation of God, that all they have the privilege, the opportunity in His goodness to see His created beauty. They have this opportunity to grope after Him. But fallen mankind does not grope for God, do they? Yet, they are without excuse. Isn't that what Romans 1 tells us? They're without excuse. Why? Because His worth and His majesty is accessible. Common grace and general revelation have given humanity plenty of cause to seek the true God. Plenty of cause. 
But in our fallenness, we won't. We will not. We cannot. Both are true. How do you like that? In fact, really God is not distant from us. In Him, we have our being. That's what He reminds them. In Him, we have our being. Job 12.10 And whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. In Him, we have our being. Verse 28, For in Him we live and move and exist. And even some of their poets have said this, For we also are His children. Now, that was the Stoics. And they were referring to His as reason. This great reason that's permeating the cosmos. In Him we have our being. And this reason, in Him, we are His children. And John comes along and says, Oh yeah, You're right about that. The Logos, that's Christ. And you're right. That's exactly who you... In Him you have your being. That's exactly right. And so here Paul is doing the same thing with these philosophers. He said, even your poets... These poets are far removed from these specific philosophers here in this time. This was was years back. But nonetheless, they still worked on these philosophical uh, thoughts. And so Paul points back to them and says, even some of your philosophers, even some of your poets got it right in a distorted kind of a way because your notion of reason really points to your reality of being created by your Creator God. I'm giving you the scriptural truths and just superimposing them on your life. Here's what you should be groping for, the one true God who has created you. But you can't. Yet you are without excuse for the very existence of creation holds you guilty. Isn't that something? Just that we can look out and marvel at general revelation, at common grace, enough to be accountable and guilty before Creator God. That's marvelous light. So God brought all people into being and they only exist by His providence. And the poets are well aware of it. So the Athenians, they didn't know or respect the Old Testament, but Paul quotes some of their poets here just to remind them, just to bring, them, uh, to bring it to bear upon them. They, referenced, they were referencing uh, the reason there. that you know, Actually, it was Zeus, really, so the point there was there was an ultimate kind of ultimate God and all the pantheon of gods there, and that was Zeus. But later they began to kind of take that and sort of transform that notion of Zeus into reason. That's what they would call the logos there. So they sort of repackaged the concept of Zeus, if you will, and he was a personification of reason. But now Paul rightly applies this quote to the true and living God. And what can we take from this? We can take all kinds of things out of our culture and then bring them back to the truth of the living God. Don't you understand? Everything that's created out there, all these notions, all these philosophical meanderings, they all come back to a source. We have marvelous opportunity to pick from critical race theory, critical fill-in-the-blank theory, that is wrecking our culture, to take that and bring to bear the reality of the Creator God of Scripture onto this notion of fallen man. 
So I say this to, to encourage you here. Tell the message of Scripture. The Greek poets here describe the message of Scripture. That's what they're describing. And Paul just brings, he just, he just redirects them another step back to the truth. The one true Creator God. They described the one true Creator God as just in a distorted fashion. So there's mighty power in the message of Scripture. Mighty power. And again, Paul never went verse on them. He never took them to a specific verse. They wouldn't know it anyway. Now, did he say things he may have quoted from the Old Testament? He may have. We don't have all his words. My point is, he's taking truth. And he's applying it to their lives. And it's just assumed. He's not having to explain himself or apologize for it. He's just applying the truth to their lives. Because Scripture is powerful. Hebrews uh, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Don't be afraid to tell people the message of Scripture. Even if they reject its authority. The men that Paul was speaking to here rejected the authority of Scripture. And he never, he, didn't, he never even flinched. He just went right to the authority of Scripture. Don't be afraid. It's still true. It's still relevant. And it will grip their souls. So use the Bible. Use the Bible with yourself. Use the Bible with your children. Use the Bible with your neighbors. Even if they do not acknowledge its authority. Use Scripture. Scripture is God's divine revelation of Himself. And it is the supreme court of truth. When you take Scripture, whether you're quoting it verbatim or whether you're applying its principles, know this as you take it to bear on a culture. It is the supreme court of truth. Irregardless of how the culture sees it and respects its authority, that makes no difference of the reality of its authority. It is the supreme court of truth. And finally, that brings us to the judge. He's our creator. He's our owner. He's our provider. He's our sustainer. But He's also our judge. He owns us, right? Because He made us. And He has every right to judge us. Verses 29-31. Being then the children of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thoughts of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So God cannot be represented by an image. God cannot. He is our Creator God and He will judge humanity. He will judge the world. 
So he's not like the images of the Greek temple, right? Now again, the Epicureans at this point, the Epicureans and the Stoics, would, they, they would agree with God at this point. Or excuse me, with Paul at this point. They would agree. They were not uh, real idol worshippers in that regard. That they, that they carved images for themselves. Now in their minds and in their, in their ponderings, they were idolaters. But not in terms of material images. They had misconceptions of the Creator God. Just as much idolaters. And so Paul brings us to bear on them. Look, God's not like this. God's not like you because the misconceptions that you have about God in your mind is that you're creating uh, little demigods for yourself to try to uh, 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 help you sort of navigate life and you're creating them after your own image. And so Paul's redirecting them here. Look, God's not like idols. The material idols that people worship and put in temples are the idols that you conjure up in your mind. The misconceptions of the one true God. He's not like this. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? So he tells him, look, He's not like you. And then he says in verse 30 that uh, God has overlooked times of ignorance and is now declaring to all men that all declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent so until the coming of christ here god's redemptive revelation was addressed almost exclusively to israel right and the god fears that had it affixed themselves to israel but almost exclusively there leaving out the majority of pagan nations by and large now is that fair well, in our feeble minds, we might say no. But who's the owner? Who's the creator? Is it fair in the economy of God? Absolutely fair. What's not fair, what we need to come to realize is what's not fair is that He would reveal Himself to any of us. But He has. And now, although for a long time, the larger pagan nations at large have been left out of God's revelation of Himself specifically. Yet, in His kindness, He has not wiped them off the planet. Paul's here now, sharing with his men. And he said, the times of ignorance have been, God has overlooked. You're still here. You should have been condemned to a literal hell, but you're still here. And now God, and His creative time according to his timetable and his purpose now God has brought me to you and I'm telling you the truth about your creator God so except for general revelation he's left them unaware of their God but yet without excuse and but God did not judge them And now Paul is proclaiming his truth. And he says, to all people everywhere, calling them to repent. Why? Well, God is worthy of worship and we're sinful and separated from Him by our sins. But look what he reminds them of here. And because that is true, there is a day that is fixed and He will judge the world in righteousness and He will judge them through a man that is the unique God-man, His Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ. He's appointed him judge. And he's furnished proof to all men by raising this Christ from the dead.
Now, the Epicureans believe God couldn't be bothered with earthly events. The Stoics believed in this cosmic reason, kind of a, a secular pattern of history, both unbiblical, but both reject the concept of resurrection. Yet, Paul doesn't even flinch there. He knows that they reject the resurrection and he's not looking for any external sources that could possibly prove that the resurrection might actually could have existed. He just tells them according to Scripture. Look, God has appointed His Christ to be judge of this fallen world, righteous judge of this fallen world. And He's given the proof in that He resurrected Him. That's God's standard. Why does He get to set the standard? Because He's the boss. He's the Creator. So He just tells them flat out. Resurrection is this assurance of judgment and salvation. Judgment for rightly before a holy God outside of Christ and salvation for all of those who repent and believe on Christ, trusting in His atoning work on the cross, there where He paid the sin debt of all those who trust in Him, all those who repent and turn to Him, bearing their sin debt on the cross where the, the, the righteous wrath of the Father was poured out upon the Son, that there He might bear the sin debt before a holy God on behalf of of His people, now declaring them justified in His perfect life, lived perfectly under the law, and in His atoning death, dying on their behalf as their substitute, making atonement for Him, for them, appeasing the wrath of God on behalf of His people, that they might stand justified before a holy God. Their sin debt paid in full, cleansed, their sin washed away, paid for in Christ, where He bore it on the cross. And the evidence that that was a pleasing sacrifice to God the Father, the standard bearer, the Creator, the Judge, is that He raised His Son from the dead and appointed His Son now to have authority to judge all men based on what standard are you in Christ and that you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone or do you remain guilty? outside of Christ, bearing your own sin debt before a righteous God. And there's the standard by God the Father, granted through Christ the Son. And the resurrection validates that He is going to be judge and that He's going to be Savior. That's it. So Paul calls these elite philosophers of Athens to behold the majesty of the Holy Creator God the only living God who is worthy of all worship, the God who made the world. He was not made of the world. He made the world. He reigns over the world in sovereign power and worth. And this God will someday rightly judge the world through His Son for her idolatry. Every man will give an account. And will give an account as those who are in Christ, favor are those who are outside of Christ, guilty before a holy God, dead in our trespasses and sin. He will judge. And the God of the Bible is the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is none like Him. He never evolved. 
He never changes. He never fades. He is infinitely perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, ever-present. And everyone will give an account to Him. There's no hiding. There's nowhere that you can escape. God, you will give an account. And here's His standard. No repentance, no salvation. No repentance in Christ, then you will stand alone before a holy God one day and He will judge you in His righteousness. According to His own character because of your sin. So the call is to repent. To believe on Christ. Because He is the second person of the triune Godhead. The promised Savior. The resurrected perfect Savior. And the righteous judge. According to the truths of Scripture. Based on the reality of God. Who is our owner. Our provider. Our protector. And our judge. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for our time here. We thank You for the beauty of this text. We pray that You would take it and bring it to bear upon our souls that we might know You more fully. We thank You for the worth of Your being that You reveal to us and, and the frailty of our, our, and limited, limited, limitedness of our, our, our limitedness of our capacity to know You. But yet You are gracious and You continue to reveal Yourself to us, to show Yourself to us that we might marvel as frail as we are, that we might marvel at Your worth. Thank You for such grace that You would extend to the likes of us in the mercies of Christ. We thank You and we praise You in Christ's name. Amen.